0: how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you probably know that Athletic Brewing Company is my absolute favorite non-alcoholic beer for me finding an incredible non-alcoholic beer to drink around the fire pit or at a dinner was a game changer in sobriety and i love athletics so much that i became a brand ambassador so that i could share the love you can save 20 percent with code kcd20 on your first order of athletic at their website now, they are not sponsoring this ad, but I wanted to share this discount if you wanted to try it out. So, my personal favorites are their Golden Upside Dawn and their Run Wild IPA. But I want to hear what your favorites are. Just go to athleticbrewing.com and enter the code D 20 at checkout. That's C A S E Y. D20, and you'll save 20% on your first order. Hi there. Today we're talking with Laura Cathcart Robbins, who is the host of the amazing podcast, the only one in the room, and the author of a memoir called Stash that is coming out right now. So I have been binging on her memoir for this entire week. It's one of those that you read, and it's impossibly hard to put down and we'll just dive into it. So Laura, welcome. Oh, Casey, thank you so
1: much for having me. And and for the kind words about the memoir, Stash, which
0: I love to hear. (laughs) It was a riveting read. And just so we get started, since it's just coming out now and most people haven't read it, will you give us a quick intro to what the memoir is about? Yeah, it's about a a
1: 10 month period in my life where I was losing a marriage or failing in a marriage. And uh, it was kind of circling the drain with an alcohol and pill addiction. I had two young boys and I, more than anything, I wanted to make sure that I was able to stay in their lives the way that I had been. At the same time, I was the parent association president at their school. I had just been asked to join the board at their school. Uh So I had this kind of like impossibly big imposter syndrome but i had this really big life i was in a high profile marriage i had these duties these commitments and i was a mom um and i was kind of in a leadership position in all those communities and i i felt like i needed pills and alcohol in order to show up for it so the it's my journey to recognizing that and then what i do afterward
0: yeah And one of the things that I noticed right away was the idea that addiction can happen to anyone, regardless of socioeconomic status or income or what everything looks like on the outside.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I think one of the lines in the, the book jacket is privilege doesn't protect you from pain. And so there was this, it's written from this place. Um, I write it as a black woman. I also write it as a woman who recognizes her privilege and her status. And I also write it as an addict. And, and you're right. I was, you know, I kind of went my whole young adulthood, except for like, there was one year where, well, it's a, it's a year where I indulged in substances. But besides that, I had a pretty normal twenties and thirties and thought that you know people who overdrank or overuse like that was their problem and certainly someone of my stat- status in my community couldn't have a problem because i wouldn't be allowed to have problems right what would i have to drink and use over because mm-hmm. i had this beautiful life i had these beautiful kids for a long time i had this beautiful marriage and and it didn't stop it it you know the 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 addiction that that was that is mine um, did not respect any of those boundaries. <laughs> yeah. It was like, nope, there is no barrier to entry. It's time. It's yeah. time for you to look at this and it's time for you to recognize it.
0: Yeah. And I think that's something that so many women can relate to where they're struggling with an addiction or they're struggling with drinking too much or taking pills and, and feeling awful. And yet, the fact that they, from external appearances are still holding on a job and responsibilities and taking care of their kids both gives them a reason to keep going and say there's nothing to see here there's no problem and also stops people from intervening and being honest with them well and I
1: use that um and and since you read the the memoir you've heard you heard me talk about it I As long as everybody thought I was okay, if I were impossibly put together, if there was no, if I showed up for my tennis lessons, if I was at every lunch and jewelry show and showed up for my, you know, uh, um, appointments with my shopper at Barney's, then nobody could say there's a problem because how could there be, Yeah, you know, and, um, it's, it was such like, I thought everybody else was doing it for real. And I was the only one who was, you know, kind of trying to keep up the whole time.
0: No, definitely. I mean, I know when I was drinking, the constant thought going through my head was, why can't I cope with life? Like at work, why can everyone else seem to do this? And I can't. And yet the more I've done this work, I know you're a podcast host, the more I've talked to people on the podcast, I realize that Most people aren't doing it or aren't doing it well. It's just this like silent epidemic of it doesn't matter if you're a CEO or a stay-at-home mom with everything in place. There's this huge vein of maladaptive coping strategies with substances. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I had some feedback from someone who read Stash the other day. She and I knew each other years ago, haven't talked in years. And she's like, and, and she doesn't have a problem with drinking, but she's like, I think everyone will connect to two kids under five, yeah. you know, what that life looks like, the demands of that life. And, you know, how it starts for me is I want to treat myself, right? Yeah. I deserve something at the end of this, at the end of this day, at the end of this week, don't I deserve something? I need, I need some relief. And who would blame me? Honestly, it's it's if you if you saw my life, you would not blame me for needing a drink at the end of the day or a glass of wine with dinner or a sleeping pill to go to sleep at night. It's all perfectly reasonable. But for me, that treat became more and more frequent until it was my norm. And then that's when I crossed that invisible line and things started going. So my solution you know, which was a glass of wine or a sleeping pill became my problem. But I still had the original problem, right, that that I needed the solution for in the first place.
0: Yeah, I relate to that so much because I was always a drinker. I mean, I loved it from right when I started but I started really worrying about it when my son was 6 months old and kind of writing the notes to myself that oh god I think I have a problem and I need to make rules and all that. Yeah. Um I stopped for the first time when he was 5 and then went back to drinking after that and stopped for the second time when he was 8 and my daughter was almost 2. And it you know at the same time I was like Exactly, I deserve this. This makes sense. I have a big job. I have two kids. My husband, you know, doesn't help me as much. He's away. And we're told that it's okay. We're told, you know, here, have a glass of wine. I mean, everything that we see in the media tells us how
1: important it is. Not only important, but it's beautiful, it's glamorous. It is, you know, it is what, I mean, for. I'm I'm 58. So I remember the commercials that end it with it's Miller time, right? Yes. They they had this amazingly packed day or a good time with friends. And now it's Miller time. That's Miller beer. And you crack one open and it's like it just enhances everything that you're already experiencing. It's not even telling you to drink when you're down or you're, you know, agitated or whatever is not to settle down, it's to enhance,
0: yes, you know
1: and and so all that messaging is really effective, not just for selling booze, but for creating a mindset like a a worldwide mindset, yeah, that this is something that people do, yeah, you know, yeah,
0: I mean, I'm dating myself as well i'm forty seven. But I spent 20 years in marketing communications and digital marketing. And I remember as a business case study presented as a positive the way that Michelob's um, marketing Mm. plan went, which was at first the weekends belong to Michelob. Then the nights belong to Michelob. Then the days belong to McLobe. And then finally, some days are better than others, you know? Wow. And the idea was, hey, we need to increase year over year our profits. And we do that by increasing our share of wallet amongst loyal customers, which basically translates to get people to drink and get people to drink more often of this highly, highly addictive substance and make it seem like they're doing it for themselves. Yes. This is something this is self-care. Yeah.
1: Right? This is yeah. part of your self-care regimen. Yeah. And you know and I've seen and I as I'm sure you have so many different news stories about how alcohol is alcohol is great for you because it I don't even remember what it's supposed to do but it
0: Oh yeah, something about like moderate hard drinkers are healthier yeah. than abstainers and all those studies that are crap.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And then there's the other studies that show how detrimental it is to your health, but it's poison is what it is.
0: Yeah. And I remember going to my psychiatrist and somewhat being oblivious, but also being embarrassed and um, told her that I was waking up every night at 3am and that I was Mm. so stressed and that my My job was just, you know, completely overwhelming to me, of course, did not mention I was drinking a bottle of wine a night. I gave the standard answer of a couple glasses a couple times a week and she prescribed me Ambien. So then I was drinking a bottle of wine a night and taking Ambien, which I don't have to tell you how dangerous that is. Oh, it's first of all, that makes me go like, yes. (laughs) Yes. Oh, that you're not the only one in the room? Yeah. No, just like
1: that sounds fun. Yeah. But
0: <laughs> well, I was not like, anymore. let me solve this problem. I can get completely yes. drunk and then sleep yes. through the night and it's not a problem.
1: Right. But no, it is, I mean, that's that's what the end of my my drinking and using was. I was um drinking and taking lethal amounts of 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 booze and pills by the end. And I really felt like I had no choice because there would be no sleep for me otherwise. And I had this, you know, I had a phylofax And so again, dating myself, this is before smartphones, uh, maybe smartphones were around. I had a Blackberry, but, um, but that was my calendar. And, you know, I would pour over my calendar at night thinking, what can I cancel? What can I cancel? And if I couldn't cancel anything, I had to get sleep so I could show up for everything. There was no possibility of not sleeping that night. So, but
0: it was sleeping, and when I read your memoir, at some point it was also just not shaking, right, and getting yes. through various moments.
1: Yes, the withdrawal was. I mean, it the the addiction is is a monster, or my addiction is a monster. I, I think of it as a dragon sleeping in the back of a cage behind me. <laughs> And I'm doing everything I can not to wake it up again. It's been sleeping for, you know, a little over 14 years now. So we're, we're trying to, you know, keep that lullaby going. But the withdrawal, the detox that I would go through and more and more frequently, the more and more dependent I was on everything was, was a juggernaut. Like it was, it, it was why I, I stayed, it was why I didn't get help. Which sounds really weird, but I knew that asking for help would mean I'd have to stop and then the withdrawal would intensify to a point where I didn't know if I would survive yeah in fact I was I had to be medically detoxed um I could not have just stopped on my own um, and I talk about the time where I ran out for a week in in the book and there were horrific consequences to that so i I had to be detoxed so that yeah. I could um, have a chance of abstaining.
0: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. When I decided to stop drinking, therapy was a big part of my sober toolbox. It wasn't just about saying no to opening a bottle of wine. Once I stopped drinking, I had to deal with everything in my life that alcohol helped me push down. And with my therapist, I was able to better understand how my relationships with my husband and kids, my bosses and friends needed to shift to support my sobriety. If you're thinking of starting therapy as part of your journey, BetterHelp is the way to go. It's all online. It's convenient and flexible. It's tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. Therapy can help you become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday and score 10% off your first month. That's better help Help dot com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. Yeah. And I think that's really important for people to hear because depending on how much you're consuming, whether it's pills or whether it's alcohol, it is incredibly dangerous and sometimes lethal to detox yeah. on your own. So yes. I mean there is help available. Um, but not everyone can just go cold turkey and be, you know, feel like shit and have the shakes and the sweats mm-hmm. and the brutal hangover. You know, it's often you do need medical help and it's, it's dangerous. Yeah. People die
1: yes. trying to do that. People yeah. have not made it into the ER is where they belong and, and died at home or died on the way. So well, and it's, because it's,
0: there's so yeah. much judgment around it as well. Yes. Like, I've talked to so many women who are like, I don't want to tell my doctor. I don't want people in the community to know I am a judge, a doctor, a, you know, elected official. I yeah. am on the board of a school, you know, my community's mm-hmm. small or big or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's the other thing um, that I hope this book helps with is reducing the stigma around what addiction looks like. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm talking addiction to whatever it is, um, but specifically substances here. And because like you said, if someone like me, you know, someone who was coming from this, this place of, of privilege, who held this status in her community could fall prey to this insidious, you know, addiction, then, then really it could be true for your best friend or it could be true for you or your parents or your children and and to know that they're not bad people because of that they're not weak people mm-hmm. because of that um but certainly they are people who when they ask for it are deserving of help
0: yes absolutely in yeah. compassion
1: yes yes
0: so i mean i think for most of us who end up you know, having a truly unhappy, unhealthy relationship with substances. Yes, we start taking it for a reason, but there's some reason that it works for us, that Mm. we don't have to think about things or deal with things or um, we are better able to cope or happier when we're under the influence, at least in the beginning. So you titled your memoir Stash, and I know there are a couple reasons for that. Can you tell us about that? Yes. I mean, picking a
1: title for a book is a really interesting thing. Um it had maybe 20 titles before this and they were all too long. <laughs> they were all like, you know, two or three sentences. <laughs> and and then I would whittle them down, but nothing quite fit. And I was going over um, the pages that my agent, my agent was my first editor. So, you know, the way it worked is I had sent, um, 30 or so pages actually to Holly Whitaker,
0: mm-hmm. who
1: I know is also a guest on your show. And she's a really good friend of mine. And she read them, sent them to her agent who loved them, signed me that Monday. She got them on a Saturday, signed wow. me that Monday. And that was in November of 2020, November 2020. Yeah. And then she asked me how quickly can you write this. So, I was like, you know, I was elated. I was signed by a literary agent. That was like my dream. And so I got got to work and I wrote it, turned it into her final in April. But um, in between there, I was sending her pages and she was editing. We would always go back and forth on the title during that time. And I was going over that last pass before I sent it to her for the very last time, and just noticed how important my stashes were yeah. um and this is be my stash of booze which I kept in my rain boots and my closet um my my pills which I kept everywhere I had little hiding places for my pills not only in the house but in the car in my clothes and my purses um the you know just I had I had stashes literally everywhere I know that people who have stashes would totally get that title, <laughs> yeah, and then the other thing is, and I think you and I talked about this just for a minute, I had um stashed away pieces of myself uh I had a you know a stepfather who when I was the way that i when i when I was authentic, when I was my authentic self authentic six-year- old seven year old eight- year old Laura uh it rubbed him the wrong way. And things got weird in my house. So I started stashing those pieces away that irritated him or annoyed him or that he didn't value. And that way I was able to make my house more peaceful. Mm -hmm. I did the same thing in my marriage um, without asking, you know, is this something that bothers you? Is this something that we need to talk about? I would see a reaction and I would immediately make an adjustment. And stash those pieces of my personality away, which I feared might not be valued by him, him being my husband in in the marriage. And it, it really was, um, it was really that, you know, that, that was the big, my biggest problem, but I couldn't get to that until I stopped drinking yeah. and stopped taking pills. I couldn't even see any of that until I did that. Mm-hmm and that may not be true for everybody. I know a lot of people who have even without a therapist who have, you know, done some self-examination and discovered those things about themselves, but it wasn't my story. I needed to go through everything that I went through in order to be able to look at any of that and and see how I continue to course correct my life based on, you know, my perception of what I thought others needed or wanted from me so that I was liked, so that I wasn't uncomfortable. So that I could, um, you know, kind of sail under the radar.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think so much of that people talk about your your inner critic voice that you internalize when you're young to keep you safe and secure because you have so little power or control over your life. You're sort of taught who you need to be. And then yeah. you carry that through adulthood when it's really good to release that because you don't need it anymore and yet you're almost doing it to yourself what other people have taught you or told you growing up yeah i mean
1: i i it wasn't almost i was doing it to myself yeah. there was there was no one in my life who was asking this of me mm-hmm. you know when i look back i can see that at the yeah. time i thought everyone was asking it of me yeah and and that's just how it felt but that wasn't the reality i had no mirror to reflect back to me what was actually happening. I had no perspective, you Yeah,
0: know? Yeah. I mean, I remember that even with my husband, um, we got together when we were 23 and mm. his girlfriend prior to me had some mental health issues and, um, you know, some some serious ones. And one of the reasons when we got together, he told me he loved being with me was because I was good and confident and competent and independent and basically didn't struggle with mental health. And so 14 years later, we've been married 14 years, and I, you know, he had never said this, but felt like he wouldn't love me if I told him I was struggling with this, and therefore I just drank, and then it got worse, you know? Right, right.
1: Right. No, I totally understand that. It makes perfect sense to me why you would not reveal that and why you would just drink instead. Because like I said earlier, that's a solution for that, right? Is I can treat it this way for a while. Yeah. Maybe for the rest of my life, if I can have a couple of drinks or a bottle or whatever it is, and no one has to know, yes, I'm taking that option, please.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, what finally made you stop, made you be like, I can't function this way anymore.
1: So the 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 chapter I write about that in is called Rock Bottom, I think. It should be anyway. <laughs> I have to look go back and look. Um and when the first readers, when my editor and my agent read it, they're like, this doesn't really sound like a rock bottom. <laughs> and I was like, I understand, but it was. This was my my moment of clarity. Um, because I had had incidents earlier on in my life and in the book that might have been a better rock bottom for some people. Mm-hmm. Like this happened, you know, you were hospitalized. That's a big rock bottom. This humiliation happened. That's a big rock bottom. But what happened was it was 4th of July. My, um I was by myself with the kids. I was out at our, our house in Malibu and, we were supposed to wait till it got, got dark and then go see the fireworks. And I was in withdrawal and I couldn't wait and I couldn't go see them with them. And so I I sent them off with the neighbors and I had this experience there that was not... I'm trying to think of what the word is. It It just wasn't like a big explosion of experience, even though there were a lot of exploding fireworks outside. <laughs> it was just... Me settling into a surrender and going, I can't continue like this anymore. Yeah. And the admission that I was going to have to tell people I needed help to myself, I needed to admit to myself that this was something that I was gonna have to do. I was gonna have to take action on it and not just, you know, kind of take care of it in this very self-contained way that I had been doing. Yeah. Um, I needed to go outside of myself. And if I had been a single woman. I guarantee you, nobody would have known. I would have said I was going away for a vacation. I would have probably gone to some kind of lovely treatment center and been back, but I wasn't, I was, I was still married, even though I was, um, you know, at the tail end of my divorce, I had two young kids, I had all these commitments. So I had to tell people that I needed to go away. And Mm -hmm. so that was, that was my rock bottom.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I know in reading your book, there were some very legitimate reasons why you didn't want to go to treatment, or why it would have been hard for you, including that you were going through a divorce, and your your lawyer said, "Don't do this; you might lose your kids, or you know, you'll lose leverage." I mean, that mm-hmm. for every mother is terrifying.
1: Yes, and I'm I'm laughing because she was so emphatic. Oh, yeah. Uh, She's, she's such a great character. Um, <laughs> she was, it was actually in retrospect, it was really fun to write about her because I have a different appreciation for our dynamic now than I did at the time. Um, and you know, and she was right so much, like so often, rather, she was right about what she was telling me. Um, I think she and I had different goals for the outcome, different priorities for the outcome of my divorce and they weren't always aligned. But at that moment, she she had gotten all of her ducks lined up. She had no idea that there was an addiction. And so, yeah, when I told her, um, she felt blindsided. She was just like, how can we fix this? How can we let's, you know, let's wait. And then I'll, I'll send you to a spa. It'll be very discreet. Like, you know, like, but we can't, you cannot wave the white flag and go to treatment now. That's out of the question because we will lose all these ducks that I've so neatly lined up for you to get the best outcome from this divorce. Yeah. 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 And, and boy, I wanted to do what she said. I really wanted to be like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe I could wait and just go to a spa. Later, which I don't know what spa that is that I could have gone to. <laughs> yeah. I think it would have had to have been a treatment center, whatever it looked like. But, but I, I, I knew because I'd had that decision in that rock bottom moment where I had admitted to myself that this was the path forward for me. I, I couldn't, I couldn't wait. And I, I pissed her off. You know, she was very unhappy with me and I was very unhappy with me, but I didn't feel like I had another choice.
0: You know what I thought was interesting in reading it? I mean, I know that one of the biggest uh, challenges for so many women in getting well is needing to draw boundaries and advocate for themselves in ways they never have before. I mean, so many women I work with are high achieving people pleasers, which is a very unique combination um, that actually is, is ripe for addiction. And the biggest boundary that I saw you draw in the book when I was reading it was with your lawyer. And that's kind of amazing.
1: Yeah, it's um, thank you for for noticing that high achieving people pleasers. I've never heard that. That's awesome. (laughs) I'm so using that. I I don't have a pen, but I'm going to write it down afterward. (laughs) You're
0: more than welcome to.
1: (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Um yeah. I and uh, again we were at one of those impasses where she saw things one way and I saw things another. And it was around finances, which is always tricky anyway. Yeah. Like I don't like to talk about I don't I will pay the check for 20 people so I don't have to haggle over the check. Like yes. I don't ever want to talk about money and I don't want to talk about your money. <laughs> I don't want you talking about mine and we were in a, a a situation with a forensic accountant um and that's someone who is hired specifically to go through finances not just what's in ledgers but go back through bank accounts and contracts and um and and look at everything that's that's marked as income and everything to to allocate i mean to um what's the word i'm looking for where you trace where that money is gone, yeah. basically. You see where it was spent and and maybe where it's it's being banked or wherever. And it's a really thorough um examination. I think people compare it to like a, a proctologist. <laughs> you don't want that examination. It's like an audit. Um and so the the forensic accountant and my attorney and me, we were going over these these documents and I mean, I probably had a panic attack. I'm not sure. Cause I had no name for that then, but I was overwhelmed by the, no, this is not cool. I don't want to be going over all this. This, this feels like vultury to me, like what we can pick this and we can pick that. And it just didn't feel right to me. And I did, I had this surge of power, um, and I was able to draw a boundary with her about how I wanted to go through that part of the process. And it it, it astonished me. I know it astonished her. She didn't like that either. But <laughs> I was astonished by it because I hadn't felt that way, you know, in, in maybe decades
0: at yeah. that point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48, so if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media. But the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code hello. That's Happy h.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. You know, I loved when you described in writing the book that that folks were like, that doesn't sound like a rock bottom because, you know, myself included, I felt like it wasn't necessarily any particular incident that happened. It was like the death of a thousand cuts, where yes. I finally laid in bed and was like, I'm going to fuck up my kids and my life and my marriage and my health. And it's going to be my own fault. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. I mean, my rock bottom was like throwing up in the bathroom, red wine at the age of 38 of a hotel and trying to not have my husbands or kids wake up, you know? Yeah. Having him He's say, we watched a the quietly. show the night before yes. not remembering any piece of it and literally being uh, like, is he fucking with me? And like mm-hmm. trying to play it off, you know, things like that, that finally you're just like, I can't live this way anymore.
1: No, it's exhausting. Yes. It's the cover up is so exhausting. Yeah. And, and that defensiveness and their
0: paranoia and all yes. that stuff.
1: Yeah. And then the trying to piece together, like I was a pharmacist and a detective and a bartender and, yeah. <laughs> you know, and a mom and a driver and a wife and, a, you know, a tennis partner and all those things. But the, that detective thing, that sleuthing that I had to do when somebody brought up something I didn't remember. Yeah. Or I didn't remember it like that. Like, oh, wait, she was there? <laughs>
0: or like trying to play it off, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So in my head, I'm having all these like revelations, but outwardly I'm, I'm nodding along like, oh yeah,
0: I remember that. Oh yeah.
1: That was funny. And like you just said, are they fucking with me? Did that really happen? Yeah. It's, it's crazy. That's why I I wrote everything Genuinely don't know. (laughs) Genuinely don't know. Have no man. Ambien man. Ambien is, uh, which is the pill that I was addicted to. It's, I mean, it's, it's known for its interference with short-term memory yeah. when when it's taken longer than prescribed, which is usually a ten-day run, a one, one 10 ten-pill, um, you know, one pill per day for ten days, and that's that's what's recommended for Ambien. I don't know Beyond anyone that. who
0: takes Ambien who's like, oh, it's a ten-day run, like it's an right. ongoing. Like I have trouble sleeping yeah. before I take yeah. Ambien.
1: Exactly. Exactly. But it, it it does. It robs you of your short term memory. If you if you stay awake once the pill is effective, you're not gonna remember or I didn't remember anything after the effect started. Yeah. So and I that's what I like though. I like that feeling. So I would try to stay awake, but then I would have no memory. So I would have to I had to do it at night, <laughs> you know, had to make sure I was in bed. Um, that I had used the bathroom that my kids were asleep, like, because I knew that there was going to be this period where I was, I was gone yeah, and I was not, I would not be able to respond should anybody need me or want me during that. It's probably 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. um, before it actually was effective enough to put me to sleep. And what a risky thing to, to do all that prep work for 10 minutes of a high before I fell asleep.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I remember just the amount of work that went into keeping it all together when I was essentially yeah. like knocking myself unconscious every night. I mean, I also remember very vividly knowing that I needed to set my alarms and make the coffee for the next morning before yeah. I had my third glass of wine, like just, yeah, you know, setting five alarms and making sure that my emails were sent. And for high achieving women, I feel like, you know, we always think we don't have any willpower or any determination when we're caught in addiction, but you've been essentially running a marathon with a ball and chain around your ankle. Like you're doing so much more work than the average person because you are trying to do it all with this substance in your life. Yeah. And I think for, you said that so beautifully, it's so true. And I, I think
1: for many, well, I'll just speak for myself, for me, the abrupt juxtaposition of living that, you know, got to hustle life to not having to hustle for whatever it was anymore, but just living, it, it felt really uncomfortable, mm. you know, because I had been so busy with my actual life. And then controlling everything,
0: yeah. you know,
1: on the side that once that controlling everything factor was removed, controlling everything you just said, making the coffee, sending the emails, you know, setting the alarms. I forgot about that. I used to do that too. I, I had two alarms that I would set. I had a, a nightstand alarm, like an actual alarm clock, and then my phone and not, not having to do that anymore was eventually a relief. But at first I was just like, it's like me now when I go on vacation, I need like a day to get into it because I'm, I'm, it's like when you're running down a hill, when you're little and your legs just keep going, even when you want to stop, like Mm -hmm. just can't stop. I'm just in this momentum um, and I need that time, but it was like that for me.
0: Yeah. Well, so tell me what treatment was like for you because- I haven't been, and I know that a lot of women who probably could benefit from it are terrified. It's terrifying.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It is. No, it's not. My experience was I had done enough research. I'm a really good researcher. I had done enough research to understand that I was going to be in a world of discomfort when I got there. I did not account for how. I'm not a joiner, you know, I, I, I'm not, I mean, even though I was in these leadership positions, I was not somebody who liked to join clubs or groups of any kind. And these, the treatment center that I went to was very communal Um you four women sharing one bathroom was something entirely foreign
0: to me. Yeah. I was
1: like, I hadn't shared a bathroom with anybody. I mean, I barely even my husband before I left. We anyway, but I, I just, and to sleep in a room with other people. Oh my goodness. I, and I couldn't sleep. So I was just up all night in these rooms with other people. A lot of people including Scott, my boyfriend who was making all the noise when (laughs) this podcast first started with his (laughs) phone. Um, he and I met the hour. I met him at the hour after I checked in and, um, he was my dear, dear friend while we were there. Uh, and then later on boyfriend and now he's, he's my, my person, but, uh, he felt very safe there. He -hmm. got there and it was like, You know, those cartoons where they run in and close the door and lean against it and go, yeah, like, that's what it was like for him. He was like, I don't have to worry about drinking in here. I can just be for 30 days and not, that's off the table. I felt sentenced. Mm -hmm. I felt like this was, I felt like I had failed. I felt like I was a bad person. I felt like I was the worst mom, the worst mom. And leaving my kids, I'd never left my kids for that long. I hated it. I hated leaving them behind. Mm -hmm. I I just, it felt all kinds of wrong for me. And I will say that it was a good experience because what happened next was it set me up for the sobriety that I needed but didn't want. But had I not had that break, had I not had the tools that they gave me in there, I might not have taken the path where I never took a drink or a drug again, you Mm -hmm. know again, 14 plus years later. So I'm not down on treatment at all. My experience there was I was kicking and screaming the whole time. I don't know if I did that literally, I might have, but (laughs) not the whole time, but at some point, but I, I just, I was the one with my arms folded and finding all the differences, taking everybody's inventory. I was the only black one there, including the folks that worked there, except for one guy that checked me in who I didn't see again after that. And It was just, you know, it felt very isolating for me. It was in Wickenburg, Arizona. No shade on Wickenburg. Hello, if you're from there.
0: (laughs) Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white knuckling it, or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a -a one-day-at-a-time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy. You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time. And I would love to see you in the course.
1: Uh, But it was hot. It was fucking 114 degrees when I landed. And I, I say it was like breathing like the sucking on the business end of a blow dryer the whole time. There were tumbleweeds that kind of ran alongside me as I walked. It was stark, an environment that felt very unfriendly and hostile and one which I had no experience with. I was not happy there, but like I said, I I believe it to be a good experience for me. And they took really good care of people. you know. When you needed to medically detox, right? So that helped. I had to, yes. I had to medically detox, but beyond beyond the actual detox the uh, the, the medical part of it they took they just took really good care of people um and you know I was allowed to call my kids, which not everybody was like starting that first night uh because I was so devastated by it and i, I think they recognized that um my kids came to visit me halfway, which was extremely hard and wonderful and and also one of the hardest things I've ever done is still is saying goodbye to them when they left that time. Um, But, but the other moms that were there, I think they felt really supported and like their decision to go was validated over and over and over again. Like this is the right thing to do.
0: Yeah. So. And when you got out it sounded to me in reading, in reading your memoir that you had a lot of requirements because of your divorce that helped you not immediately go back to using. Is that true? Like therapy and testing and, and some other stuff?
1: Yes. I. There's a part in the book where I call my lawyer Dr. Nancy because she <laughs> gives me this prescription for my life. Um, Since I didn't get the good prescriptions anymore, she gave me this terrible one, which was that I had to do all these things, like you said. And um, and number one was drug testing and no one had asked for it. She just thought for us to be, you know, as as prepared as possible for the mediation that she would like to have proof. Should anybody say, well, I don't even know if she's been sober this whole time or whatever. Mm -hmm. She'd be like, uh, uh, uh. She's been drug testing twice a week ever since she left treatment and everything's clean, which was great strategy. It was (laughs) never called into question, but it was great strategy. But it was also um, the foiling of my plan, which was to pick up a prescription that had refilled while I was in treatment. Um, I was always waiting for refills to be ready (laughs) to come up. Like I have a refill on this date. I have a refill on this date. And I was waiting for that refill. Couldn't get it before I went in it, it had come up while I was in treatment and I wanted to go get it and, you know, and take them as prescribed. Yeah. That's what, that was my dream is. And it was, it was a daydream. It was an evening dream. It was what I sat up all night thinking about. And she said, we're going to do twice a week, a week drug testing. And I knew I couldn't beat that. I I didn't know how, like, I'm really crafty, but yeah. I actually didn't know a lot of these things, like how to do anything that was kind of the workaround. So I probably could have done some more research and figured it yeah. out, but I was just like, I'm beat. I And she's telling me, I got to go to meetings and I got to get chips and I had to get a sponsor and I had to go to therapy twice a week. And reengage with my life. You know, these are all things that I would probably, I pro- have probably told people that have recently stopped drinking to do, to show up, you know, in their lives again, to to take the action, to not let their feelings dictate their actions, mm-hmm. which is huge. Meaning that if there's, if you have priorities, if you have non-negotiables that you need to meet and you don't feel like doing them, do them anyway. Yeah. Doesn't matter how you feel, just do them anyway. And that's what that's what Nancy was telling me then. She was saying, I don't care how you feel. These are the things you need to do. And they worked. You know, I didn't pick up the refill. I ended up getting engaged in my recovery. I ended up reconnecting with my friends. I ended up doing some uncovering and discovering about my myself, that self examination I did with my therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, which was brand new for me too. I had seen psychiatrists to get drugs before, but I had never been in therapy. So it was, it was like, I came to scoff for sure. I was Mm -hmm. like, this is not going to work. Therapy is bullshit. And she was, she was just, I don't like the word magical, but she was. um, Yeah. yeah, Well, I had
0: done therapy before I stopped drinking and went and talked about everything except my drinking, which was the huge (laughs) elephant In my life that I was keeping hidden. And once I stopped drinking, I was about four months sober. I went to therapy and it was so helpful, but I couldn't have done it honestly while I was still hiding this huge portion of my life that was impacting everything. Isn't that
1: funny how we do that? Yeah. We like edit what we're going to bring to the people that we're hiring to help us.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. And you know what's funny when you were talking about all the things you were doing? um, You know, I did all the things to make me better, or to help me drink less, that wasn't actually stopping. Like I would sign up for like, 530am boot camp classes. So I wouldn't drink the night before I still drank right. the night before I would right. find up for like running classes at 7pm. So I wouldn't drink and then I just go running, come home, open a bottle <laughs> of drink. wine and drink yes. it. Right? Like, oh, I'm gonna do whole 30 because I can't drink like that didn't work either. You know, I was like, counting everything else and then be like, well, you know, so we do all these things to stop drinking or to drink yes. less or like you said to just like, manage it. So you're like, quote, unquote, a normal person somehow not getting addicted to this addictive mm-hmm. substance. Well, and if
1: when one participates in society, or at least the society in which I live, this this little ecosystem, when I'm invited out, not anymore. But then it was either for drinks, yeah. or for dinner or lunch, where drinks were to be had, what are you having? Yes. You know if it was water, that was a disappointment. Oh, you're not drinking, you know, just have a cocktail, you know, just like have something and so the pressure is is on if you're not you know imbibing or participating the way other people are, so that re- that resolve to do whole thirty or to not have a hangover in your five thirty boot camp um is it goes out the window,
0: yeah, yeah, and people are uncomfortable. If you don't drink, they want to know why, or they feel like, well, then I can't drink and that's not,
1: it's threatening. Yes. Yes.
0: Or they're like, well, you're not that bad because they don't see half of what you do. And, you know, it's just confusing to them because it's Mm -hmm. so much a part of our society. Um, I know your life has changed incredibly since you stopped drinking your personal life your your work writing this book your podcast can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and how you got there
1: yeah i think the thing that's most important is that when during my my first year of sobriety i was just hanging on <laughs> everything was like let me just get through this i was still enduring everything just without the award reward rather at the end of the day I, I'm a voracious reader. I, re- I read, all the time when I was a kid. I wrote all the time. I've always journaled. When I got sober, I lost my appetite for reading and writing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And my therapist said, "This, this is normal. You know, some people stop having sex. Like you're reevaluating. Like things are healing, and it'll come back. And you know, around five years sober, it hadn't come back." And I started to get really worried. I I didn't read anymore. I mean, I I read. I read emails. Mm. I, you know, I wrote thank you cards. That's I five I did that years. Kind of,
0: That's incredible. Five
1: years, but no reading for pleasure at all. And no writing for pleasure. And I thought I lost it. So and 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 during this time, Scott and I were dating. We didn't live together yet. We had this batting order where our recovery came first and our respective families came second. Meaning his kids, my kids. He has two girls. I have two boys. And then everything else came third. And so we really kept the boundary around that. And I concentrated on that recovery in my kids for those first five years. And that's it. Like That's really mm-hmm. all I did. And then when I started to look around at five years and I still didn't feel like reading or writing ever, Uh, and people still sent me books because they know I love books, but they were just piling up and I wasn't reading any of them. I started to get worried. So I took some action and I started taking these classes. The other thing about me is I didn't graduate from high school. I never went to college. So I don't have a formal education. Books were my education. You know, I just read everything I could get my hands on. That's how I know anything about anything. Um, But, you know, besides my actual physical experience in the mm-hmm. world is from, is from reading books. And so I started taking these classes. I went to UCLA extension, which is here in Los Angeles where I live. Um, both in person and remotely. They were ahead of the game. And I um, I started making myself right and making myself right. And then so fast forward to like, t- you know, when I was 10 years sober, 10 years later, um, it was starting to come back a little bit. Like I was starting to enjoy it, but I couldn't stop taking classes. I had to take classes all the time. I had to be writing all the time or because I wasn't writing on my own. It was like having a trainer for exercise, like I won't exercise on my own, but I'll mm-hmm. exercise with a trainer. And in 2018, I went to this writer's retreat and wrote this um, article afterward about being the only one in the room, about being the only Black person out of 600 people. And it was it was the first article that I'd written um, that ever got published, and it got published by HuffPo, and it went viral, mm. which I didn't really understand the impact of until that article. And the response was Overwhelming. And basically it was like, we get it and we want more. Like that's Mm -hmm. what people were saying to me. So, uh, Holly Whitaker reached out to me then. That's how I met her. And she's like, I just read this article. Can you write for the temper? So I started writing for them. I, I was continuing to write for HuffPo. I started the podcast in 2019, um, as one of the foundations of the author's platform I was hoping to build. And, uh, and then the, the book, in twenty twenty, which I just told you about, uh, was that was November of twenty twenty when that started. And uh, my agent signed me and and then we sold it to Atria Simon and Schuster the following summer or September. Mm-hmm. Uh and and you know, now it's out in the world, which is just crazy to me that this this it is like a birth. Yeah. Um it's like an incubation, like like a pregnancy, and then also like a birth. And so my life looks like my two kids are grown. My older son is a chef. My younger one is a screenwriter um, and a student kind of. (laughs) We're working on the student part still. He has just like a few more credits to graduate. I want him to get his degree. Uh, My ex-husband and I are super friendly. Uh, We're still in each other's lives. We still celebrate our kids together. Uh, Scott and I have lived together for the past uh, eight or nine years. And He's like I said he's my person. He produces the podcast. Uh he produces me. Like he's really mm-hmm. my brand builder. He he does the videos, he he makes um graphics, he does like he does the website, he does like all that stuff. Yeah. And I get to be the host creator of this podcast and I get to write, which is my now again favorite thing to do.
0: Yeah. That's incredible, because, you know, I know anyone who reads this book, you said it's a 10 month period of your life. And you get so invested. And then you're like, okay, what happened? Like, how did it turn <laughs> out? Um, so thank you for sharing that. Because I think sure. it's, it's really interesting. And I I always read the acknowledgments, because again, I'm curious about like, all yeah. right, what happened? And I I wanted to talk to you even more because there were, you know, various people in your acknowledgments that I was like, oh, they played a huge part in my sobriety, too. So cool. not only Holly Whitaker, who I took her hip sobriety class when I was 60 days alcohol free, and cool. I also listened to her home podcast cool. back in the day with Laura McCowan, Walking before I ever stopped drinking, like just listening to them over and over again. But you also mentioned Stephanie Wilder Taylor. And yes. one of the things, so long before I quit drinking, I had my son, and I was like the queen of the mommy happy hours. Like I would buy her books, you know, sippy cups are not for Chardonnay, Chardonnay, nap time is yes. happier. Like I gave them to my friends at baby showers. Like I was so deep in the mom wine culture. And then when my son was maybe a year old, I went down to get coffee at my office. And I saw on the front page of the paper, this article that said, you know, the queen of mommy drinking culture gets sober and bought it, read it, snuck it up to my office, you know, found it online, copied it, put it in a word doc, Titled something else, you know. This is seven years before I finally stopped. Wow! And I mean, she was so brave when she had so much invested. I think she still had a book coming out that was "Mommy Drinking." She did, yeah. Um, and she announced that she had a problem with alcohol and stopped like literally three days after she did it. I mean, for me, it took me more than a hundred days to say anything more than I was. Doing a health challenge. So yeah. just, and I'm friends with Sarah Dean, who you also mentioned in the acknowledgments. Love, but love,
1: love, yes.
0: I think for so many of us, there are these little divine breadcrumbs of just people who tell their story that it may not stick for eight years, but the seed is planted. And like you know, there's someone else out there who has struggled with this. Yeah. And that's why I love your book because you're so honest. And vulnerable, and someone out there is going to read it, and they may not be ready for a decade, but they're gonna remember mm. what you said.
1: Thank you for that. That is so beautiful. And that's boy, that's the hope. That's yeah. the hope is that because i I wanted a book like this when I was getting sober. I just didn't see any that addressed the issues I was dealing with, you know, certainly not not no woman of color. Yeah, I could find that had anything like this going on, but also no one coming from this place of privilege who was kind of you know showing up for her life the way that I was, and um and I I really appreciate that. And and just a quick side note about Stephanie because I love her too. I I love all the women you mentioned. Um, she has a book coming out that she just turned in on sobriety. It's a it's funny. Oh my gosh, it's so funny.
0: All right, I would love to have her on. So, I mean, honestly, yeah, I'll, never...
1: I'll connect you with her. She's she's fantastic. But yes, I want to just give that book. I don't even know the title. Yeah. Um yeah. She, maybe she doesn't have a title yet, but the book is coming out. She just turned it in. We're actually imprint mates um, at yeah. Simon and Schuster. So,
0: oh, that's awesome! Exciting. I love hearing that. Um, that gives me skills. Well, thank you so much for your time. If people want to obviously read the book, listen to their podcast, find out more about the work you're doing, where's the best place? The best
1: place is our website, which Scott maintains, <laughs> theonlyonepod.com. And the the opening page is stash, and then you'll see all the podcast episodes, bios, all my speaking. If you want to book me for speaking, that's on there. Like every, it's all housed in one area. It's really super simple, super simple to navigate. So theonlyonepod.com.
0: Great. And I'll put that that link in our show notes along with your bio Great. and all your information. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much for coming on. Oh, of course, Casey. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol.